How's everybody? Good. It's good to see you. It's good to, to be here. I always um, miss you when I am not here. And so some of you are like, where are you here? Like, you should be here every Sunday doing that thing. It's also good to hear from other people in our community. And it's also good to, uh, last Sunday, uh, my wife went back to work on Monday. So last Sunday, we took some time just to celebrate the summer, remember each other. And then there's always this moment of like, okay, I'm going back to work tomorrow, being a teacher. And so it was a really special day for us. So David came and did an amazing job. So I'm really appreciative of that. You know, there's some quotes uh, that seem to permeate or stick around. One of them is, God helps those who help themselves. It's amazing how many times I've heard, you know, Dale, you know in the Bible where it says that? I'm like, yeah, in the book of Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) But there's some lesser known quotes, if you will, um, unless you've read their book, author Brene Brown, in uh, a recent book clarified this statement of saying, Clarity is kind. Being clear is kind. And that quote resonated with me a lot, that sometimes the kindest thing you can do is to be clear with somebody, to not beat around the bush, if you will. That even though in the moment it may feel hard and difficult, that there's a kindness that can come from that. And at the same time, not inferring that Jesus' words aren't kind, I don't think Jesus got Brene Brown's message. Because can you imagine the conversation going on in heaven before Jesus came to earth? And he's like, hey, Jesus, yes, God, Father, when you go down there, I want you to tell some stories. And it's our chance to tell people what's really going on, what the kingdom of God is really like. So make sure when you're telling stories, use common things that people can understand. But sometimes you need to be overly simplistic But most of the time, you're going to be really confusing. And people are going to go, what does that mean? Even your closest followers, Jesus, will go, "Uh, we didn't get that. So that's our plan of communication, all right, Jesus? And he's like, sweet, that's what we're going to do. You see, today's scripture that we're going to look at is a collection of things, I believe, that Jesus said. Mark uh, does this unique thing where I think he's kind of doing like a mashup of Jesus's, some of his greatest hits, if you will. Because in the book of Matthew, he takes these same quotes and kind of scatters them over a series of chapters. Here's what Mark writes. Mark chapter four. And he was saying to them, Jesus, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? It is not brought to be put on a lampstand, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. And then he says that line, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care of what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you, and more shall be given to you besides. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was also saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. 
and goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts up and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, this is kind of the beginning of each mashup. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parables shall we present it? Hmm. It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can rest under its shade. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Oh, how I would have loved to have been in that room it would have saved me a lot of time and a lot of reading. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the gathering today. I thank you for each person that's here. I really mean it, God, that they have chosen to come and together we look at your words. May your words permeate our hearts today in a unique way. God, those who may have come hurting, may you bless them and meet them where they are. Those who are come rejoicing, may you bless them and meet them where they are. Help us not to just be hearers of the word, but God, help us to be doers. In your name, amen. There's a phrase in those verses we just read that Jesus did not talk to people or communicate with people without telling a parable. And his parables are using extraordinarily ordinary things. Things about soil and seeds and meals and coins and thieves and sheep and farmers and merchants, name it. These weren't words that you would expect to hear from the Son of God, but yet he used incredibly common things. Most of his parables were incredibly secular, meaning it wasn't things you would just find in a church or the things you would expect. And he did this for a very specific reason, and I think he's calling us to do the same thing for a very specific reason. Use things of reference that actually make sense to people. Because when there's a normalcy in our words, it breaks down some walls, and there was an unexpected thing that he did. And when he did that, and when their walls were down, they walked away a bit perplexed. There's an inference that the, the humble or the broken down may have had the ears to hear, but the prideful and self-contained may have just been confused. As author Eugene Peterson wrote about parables, he says, and then like a time bomb, they, the parables, would explode in their unprotected hearts. An abyss opened up at their very feet because he was talking about God and they had been invaded. There's a lot of people, even people in church, work really hard to protect their hearts 
to be talked about God with. Because there's a few things, rules that we have in a lot of society. We don't, we don't sit around and talk about politics and we don't talk about religion. I hear that often. So Jesus goes, I won't talk about politics. At least you don't think I am. I won't talk about religion. At least you won't think I am. I'm just talking about this seed. He's not deceiving them. He's inviting them on common ground. And as David Kim last week talked about, parables create questions like, what's the posture of your heart? Are you the kind of person that has ears to hear? Where are you on your current journey? See, parables that Jesus used seem to be harmless, but they have a hidden depth of meaning that demand an internal response. And if there's not a demand for an internal response in each one of our hearts, we don't have the ears to hear. When I coach on the football field, which somehow I got dragged into doing again, no, that's not, I mean, that's true. Like, I'm done, I'm tired. And then they're like, hey, will you come back and coach? No, I'm good. And then they meet me for coffee. Like, will you come back and coach? No, I'm good. And then God's like, why aren't you coaching? And I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> so I go when, it's a great agreement I have. I go when I can go. When I can't go, I don't go. Man, is that an amazing agreement. But I try to use some kind of parables when I'm coaching football as well. I'll talk about the football. I said, the football by itself is just sitting there. It has no intelligence on its own. It has no life in its own. It needs the effort of something else to be activated so it moves and goes. It needs somebody to kick it, to hike it, to throw it, to run with it. Everybody wants to touch it. But by itself, it has no life. And because me being me, I can't stop there. I said, guys, the goal of football is to be smarter than the football. Okay, that got a little sarcastic and probably not really that helpful. But if I was to go into a huddle at the public high school and start claiming the words of Jesus, which sometimes I do because a kid will say a reference to Jesus, like, oh, Jesus, Christ. And I often will go, where? Awesome. He's here with us in the huddle. And they look at me as if I'm the most bizarre man in the world, and I love it. But it would be ludicrous just to go like, you need to hear what I have to say, so I find common ground and common words. That's what Jesus is doing. A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed, it's not brought to be put on a lampstand, for nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret. But that would come to light if anyone has ears to let him hear. This is a ludicrous, simplistic parable. We've heard this one a lot, a lot, right? Like, hide your light under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it show, whatever it is. But like, think about this, how simple this thing is. He's like, if it's dark in your house, do you light a candle and put it under your bed? I mean, if there's a sarcasm of Jesus, I am not saying Jesus was sarcastic because some of you are like, sarcasm is like of the devil. We need to talk afterwards because it's a lot of fun. But this is the, Jesus is going, all right, guys, we'll start with an easy one. If it's dark in your house and you light a candle, do you put it under a bushel? 
And I'm wondering, thank you. Someone wants to sing, I'm going to let it shine. See, there you go, another song from Dale. He starts with a very simplistic thing, but yet even in the simplicity of this parable, we find disagreement. Because this thing means that light is meant to be seen. This thing means that truth is essential and only helpful when seen. That renewal is meant to be seen. But we have a different approach or different opinions about what it is that needs to be seen. We lose our way and we're like, this is what needs to be seen. If you love Jesus, this is what needs to be seen. There can be a variety of categories or specialties or interests that people have in their life, but I'm gonna lump a bunch of them into a two. There's that one group that are embracing that the life is about having a higher morality than everybody else. There's a drive towards moral excellence, a rigid discipline, and that others should conform to their morals. They think that's how society should work, and that should be the light that is shown, my great level of morality. And our society would just be better if you joined me in my morality. Those who fall into this camp say the moral people are in and the worldly people are not. And of course, we're the only ones in. And you should stay away, as a side note, away from the worldly ones. Or at least publicly, because they, they will take care of your threats and they will take care of breaking your morality. They'll just do it for you. And there's this other group that would probably call themselves the groups of self-discovery. Up in the city, we would say, these are the woke people. Like I'm woke. Like I see life in a bigger way than you do, than you do, you religious, narrow-minded bigots. I'm open-minded. But the beautiful thing about open-mindedness is you can still choose to be closed-minded when you want. Because if you were truly open-minded, you would accept everybody that's closed-minded, really. But that's not really what happens. I'm open-minded, you're closed-minded, so we're in different camps. And these people who fall into this group might say the self-discovery or open-minded people are in and the judgmental bigots are out. And of course, we're the more enlightened and we're in. Well, if there really isn't in, we would be in. But who's to know what's in and not in? Both of these groups would say Jesus agrees with me. That is such a fascinating phrase, that Jesus agrees with me. We can't even agree on which light we should be shining. Am I the only one that this is like affecting during the week? Like we can look at this, let my light shine. Okay, what what light are you going to shine? And all of a sudden, it's our personal opinion about what is the most important thing. In his NPR article entitled, How Would Jesus Vote? Tom Gelton wrote this. In times of uncertainty about how to act in the modern world, Christians sometimes wonder, what would Jesus do? It is an important question to ask, says Pastor Duke Kwan, a popular minister at Grace Meridian Hill Church in Washington, D.C., Because Jesus is the truest example of love and justice we've ever had in human history. That question can be problematic at times, though, 
Because at times we don't exactly know what Jesus would have done in XYZ case or circumstance. So what we do is we end up speculating and that can get Christians into trouble. I think there's a problem when we try to too quickly to say that our view of this or that is the only legitimate view. I think one of the hallmarks of Christian's discourse in the public square are to be humility, respect, patience, and self-control, because those are virtues that informed the gospel of Christ. What was interesting in this secularly written article, though they interviewed a pastor, was that when we don't know, what do we do? We don't stay quiet, we speculate and light that and shine that light. The truth is that both of these ideologies on their own and gone unchecked can lead to a kind of self-righteousness that is so dangerous. The gospel of the words of Jesus actually oppose both of these kinds of things. Because the gospel does not say the moral are in and the worldly are just out. It does not say the open-minded are in and the closed-minded, the open-minded are in and the closed-minded are out. What the gospel does say is this, the humble here, the broken here, those who admit, I'm not sure here, and the proud resist and walk away and say, why is Jesus telling such silly stories? And the people who think they're on the right side of the divide are in the most danger of all. If we back up a few chapters in Mark chapter 2, we're going to see some words from Jesus that are familiar. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, because I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, these words that Jesus is talking about are words around receptivity. Are you receptive? None of us go to the doctor and all we want to hear is, you're sick. Okay, bye. No, we'll go to the doctor not to only tell us that they're sick, but what do I do now? That there needs to be some intervention or plan. Otherwise, we just don't go to the doctor. In fact, that's why I don't go to the doctor a lot because in my head, I already know what he's going to say. I think. And then my wife's like, just go. I'm like, no, nah, he'll just say you're sick, go home. I remember 12 years ago when I uh, got diagnosed with MS and I was really struggling internally about this. It was hard. And the doctor's like, come on in to meet with me. So I sit down and meet with the doctor and I'm like, this is really hard emotionally. And I'm like, I'm struggling with what it's about, doctor. I need some help. And this is literally what this guy did. Here's some pamphlets. Go home and read them. Now, the, I, I didn't go home and read those pamphlets. I didn't want to hear anything. Those pamphlets may have been the most amazing documents ever written. I seriously doubt it, but I didn't never read them. Why? I didn't think the doctor really cared about me. He just wanted me to hear what the truth was in his mind. I don't know. Speculation. But when there's a disconnect between feeling and emotion and engagement and just information, what light was the doctor shining at that moment? He was shining the light of here's some information versus let me engage with you at a deeper level. 
You see, on both sides, the self-righteous people, that could be the moralist or the self-discovered, believe they can heal themselves, make themselves right with God by being moral or being open-minded. They don't feel the need for a soul physician, someone who intervenes and does what they can't do for themselves. You see, Jesus is teaching that he has come to those who realize that being moral and spiritual alone is unable to save them. You see, the light that needs to be put on a lampstand is Jesus. Jesus alone. Be much about him. He is the lamp that has walked into the room. One of my biggest burdens that I see about churches or groups of Christians is that we gather around likes and familiarities and assumptions, um, preferences. And we say it's about Jesus, but it's really just about things we like. A gathering that's really about Jesus should have all sorts of people who can't agree humanly. But they're about this. It was my neighbor's birthday a few days ago. I don't remember how old she exactly turned, but she's in her 90s. She's an amazing woman. A few years ago when she turned 90, there was a surprise party. There's 70 units where I live in this townhome. And the surprise party for a 90-year-old is just like we knock on the door and we don't yell too loud. We just go, surprise, because, you know, all sorts of things could happen. But we were there because of Jenny. And she is a woman that blesses people. As we're waiting for her to come to the door, because sometimes it takes some time, you ring the doorbell and you just wait. There was a gathering of 40 or 50 of us, and alone, we don't agree on much. When you're in an HOA and you have different opinions about life, you don't agree on much. As I looked around in this crowd, I'm like, these aren't people that I would call and say, let's hang out. I should, but we just think differently, and so we say hi and we're cordial. But we waited together patiently and encouraged one another, even though we think so differently. Why? Because we were there for Jenny. Now, if Jenny came to the door and we started arguing about our opinions about life, how foolish it, no way. When Jenny was there, it was like, we're here about Jenny. And we were blessing one another and encouraging, telling stories. About, it was amazing. I'm not saying Jenny was Jesus. Because you, I wouldn't have a job tomorrow if I said Jenny was Jesus. What I'm saying is the personal opinions about life get cast aside when you're there for some other reason. If this was the gathering of conservative-minded people will meet and have time with Jenny from 9 to 9.15, and then the liberals will be there from 9.15 to 9.30, those who are unsure will be there, I mean, that would be the craziest thing, and yet that's how life organizes itself. When we're there for the right person, all sorts of amazing things can happen. I better hurry up here. The next reference is so similar, but it doesn't appear so. Take care of what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given you besides. For whoever has to him more shall be given and whoever does not have, 
even what he has shall be taken away from him. Jesus is talking around, there's some systems in life here. That's why he starts off by saying, be careful what you listen to, because how you live, what you value, you are going to pass on to other people. If you think this way, you're going to pass it on. So be careful because you're going to be judged. This is very similar to the judge not lest you be judged. That is not telling us not to judge. It's just saying, when you judge people, judgment's coming back at you. Be ready. This is the same phrase as look at this, take out the log in your eye before you look at the speck in somebody else's eye. It's the same kind of systems of life. So be careful who you listen to. And they're telling you about systems of life. Jesus is going after the political systems in this verse so much more than we see it. And the political systems aren't this Republican or Democrat. The political systems is how people see the world and how they want to take you in. The system that we live out is how we're measuring ourselves. See, there's a world system that says, take all you can and protect it and call it wise. There's a system of haves and haves not. And even the Solomon and Ecclesiastes thousands of years before this said the same thing. Why is it that the, the, the unrighteous become wealthy and the righteous struggle? Or why is it that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Why is this? Because there's a system of brokenness in this world where the rich get richer and the poor get poor. So he says, be careful of what you're listening to. This unjust system, the powerful become more powerful, the weak just become weaker, is the world system. Be careful. Jesus is saying, I have another plan. Be careful. Jesus has something different. We have this idea, uh, one of the values of our church staff, we have a list of them. One of them that I encourage them to do is whenever we gather, come ready to give, not just receive. Come ready to give something. Come, re come prepared. Don't just take. Because we, what we all know to be true is that this would probably be a healthy thing in all of our relationships. Or when we study, or maybe even as in a church, what can I become ready to give and not just take? Here's what I have found to be true, that if you just simply know the rules of the game, you know how society works, you know even how to get your job done. Some of us have mastered the, the observation, I, if I look busy enough, my boss won't give me any more to do. We understand how systems work, but that keeps us at arm's length. We even understand how systems of church work. Like, how do I appear this way or that way? But it keeps us as arm lengths of actually being engaged. Let's look at it this way. Some of you think baseball is really, really boring. Right? I mean, I'm not calling you out. Don't have to raise your hand. But you're like, there's some guys and girls, whoever's playing baseball, and they're swinging this wood stick, and they hit this thing sometimes. There's a lot of standing around. It's really boring. Some of you are really into baseball and you look down on the people who think it's boring like you don't understand what's going on. There's this strategy and this unknown thing and this thing happening like, oh, if you really understood, you would be this amazing, you'd see it entirely different. I've tried to explain the nuances of the baseball and how beautiful it is to my wife and she's like, it's still boring. But I love baseball. 
And so when my daughter was four, I'm like, I've heard it's good when fathers take their daughters on trips and spend time with them. So I decided to take my daughter to spring training, which is where baseball teams practice before the season starts. It had nothing to do that I always wanted to go to spring training. I just wanted to spend time with my daughter. I wondered the day when I would lie before all of you. That was it right there. I really wanted to go to spring training. So I get there and I had a plan. The games, before the game started, I bought my daughter a hot dog. It's like, oh, I like baseball, dad. But about the second inning, she's not liking baseball as much. So after the, th after the, the third inning, I bought her some uh, Cracker Jacks. Oh, dad, I like baseball. And then I'm asked, it's about the sixth inning. I'm like, ice cream? She's like, yes, please. At the end of the game, I'm like, how did you like the game? She's like, I love baseball, Dad. We went to three games. Same pattern. Hot dog, Cracker Jacks, ice cream. We got home, and my wife looks at my daughter, and she's like, she looks a little puffy. <laughs> I'm like, we went to baseball. So I thought more than like, I, you know, she needs to go again. So we went when she was five years old. And then we again when she was six years old. And at the third inning, she's like, Cracker Jacks? It's like Pavlov's dog. She's 23 years old. She still looks at me and she's like, malt? But to be honest, we had two very different observations of what baseball was. I'm seeing it for the game. She's seeing it for like, mm, I'm with my dad getting food. I was so excited when she actually cheered at the right time. And it wasn't because the vendor walked by. <laughs> because this is a directly connected to what we're putting into something is what we're also participating in. There's one final statement that Jesus makes here. After exposing some of these worldly systems about us buying into them, Jesus says, instead, let me tell you about the miracle of the seed. And somehow I just want us to engage so deeply right here. Jesus modifies or narrows the parable that David talked about last week. Let me remind you what he says. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself, how he himself does not know. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed. Let me give you a hint. If you're reading scripture and the son of God starts to explain what the kingdom of God looks like because he's actually been there literally to heaven. It's also like this is the kingdom of God, not the physical part, but the moving part. We should listen. Think about the scene. The Son of God is about to talk about his kingdom. He seems to be pausing because he's like, what is, what is the kingdom of God like? Hmm, what's the best thing I can say? The thing that's going to captivate you, the thing that's going to draw people in. And you're like, oh man, this is going to be great. Here it is. Here he goes. And he says, it's like a mustard seed. Would you be disappointed? I'd be like, what? 
That's it, huh? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed? You mean the kingdom of God could be like a hammer. The kingdom of God could be like a muscle, a bulldozer, a fire, a tidal wave. But what you're telling me is that it's gently powerful. What you're telling me is that it's subversively renewing. What you're telling me that it's unexpectedly transformational. Yes. All right. What you're telling me is that all these things I've been collecting and valuing and putting up on my wall and putting in cases and, and putting in my safe deposit box, all these incredible things are va of value don't even get in the realm of what the kingdom of God is like. You mean my gold and silver coins, my jewels and beautiful rocks, this wood that's masterly carved, the degrees that I've earned, the books that I've written, none of those are like got into what the kingdom of God is like. And Jesus is like, no. Because the thing is, you can bury all of those in the best soil around and none of them will grow. None of them will duplicate. They'll just rot. Why? Because they don't have the power of renewal in it. You see, the miracle of the seed is that it has the power of renewal built into it. That when it's in the ground, the soil, the soul, and when the farmer goes to bed at night and it grows, he does not know how it grows. Why? Because the seed within itself has the power of renewal. What have you planted in your soul that just doesn't have any power of renewal in it? Because the seed has power that the treasures of the eye do not. And when the soil receives the seed, something, I don't know, I'm not a farmer, but even the farmer doesn't know, so let's just call it for real. There's something about this seed that when it goes into the right soil, and maybe some water, something about it unlocks it. And it grows. There's something about receptive soil that unlocks this kingdom of God within us. Think about this for a moment. Do you want something unlocked in you that all of a sudden it's growing and it's changing and you're like, I don't even know how this is happening because I get really, really tired of, uh, of doing it myself. And Jesus is like, man, just make sure your soul is receptive. The unlocking of renewal will happen because of the kingdom. The soul or the soil is not just striving for morality. It's not just thriving for the woke life because the actual characteristic of this soul is one that receives the seed into the self. Jesus infers in the prior parable that the kingdom of God needs or desires the right kind of soil to expand and oh, does it expand after that. It is so interesting to me that there's so many times our life has to fall apart before we become receptive to things. It just does. And then we get all mad at God because our life is falling apart when he's like, but this is the only time you're open to anything. What do you want God to do? 
my friend, Dave Lomas, who's the pastor at Reality San Francisco, who will be here next week with us, and I'm really excited about that, shared this quote with me from a guy named Christian Wyman. Says this, when I assented to the faith that was latent within me, and I phrased this carefully and deliberately, there was not a white light, no ministering or avenging angel that tore my life in two. Rather, it seemed as if the tiniest seed of belief had finally flowered in me or more accurately, as if I happened upon some rare flower deep in the desert and had known, though I was just discovering it, that it had been blooming and possibly year after parched year within me, surviving all the seasons of my unbelief. That's the kingdom of God within you. Last week, David Kim talked about this parable where the example of was the most irresponsible farmer of all time. Let me remind you, a farmer went out to sow and threw seeds everywhere. Isn't it more responsible just to take seeds and plant it in the rows of the best soil everywhere? You're like, that, that's the responsible farmer. But Jesus, the farmer, goes where? He goes, I'm throwing seeds on the road. I'm throwing seeds in the thorns. I'm throwing seeds in the good soil. I'm just throwing seeds everywhere because the world needs seeds. I look at that and go, that is so irresponsible. What a waste of seed. And sometimes the way we think, the kingdom of God should be a little more powerful, right? Like if... It goes on the rocks, the rocks should explode. Or like if a bird comes down and grabs a seed, what happens to the bird? It explodes. And its carcass is used for fertilizer because the kingdom of God will come through. Like, Dale, you're losing your mind. I know, but this is how we think. That when it goes on the thorns, the thorns all burn because it can't contain the kingdom of God. Man, that'll preach right there. It can't, I am, I'm going to change my voice too. It can't contain the kingdom of, the kingdom of God is a seed that once received comes alive. God keeps the power a little bit refrained, but he doesn't stop from casting the seeds. I only have a minute or two I was driving from my house to here this morning and I was driving through town and I've spent a lot of time in this town. I've spent a lot of time at the high school. I've spent a lot of time for the right reasons at the police department. I've spent time with just different people. So I think of myself as a good seed sower, I guess. And it didn't really hit me until the third prayer time this morning that God's actually saying to me, you got a lot of seeds in your bag because you're just trying to throw one where you think the soil is good. You're a seed withholder. And I'm like, I've stopped. I show up, but I'm not throwing seeds. I feel like God's saying, be like that irresponsible farmer and just throw seeds and let me pick up the pieces because you don't know where the good soil is, Dale. I know where the good soil is. I also think that's a word for all of us. 
How many times have we given up on someone? You're like, oh, they're just never going to believe. You don't know that. How many times have you given up on this world so you hide and refrain and hold it to yourself? You don't know that. All we know is that a seed has a renewal power within it. And once it hits that soil, that's good. It's going to expand. You see, Jesus was constantly and overwhelmingly and abundantly casting seeds of the kingdom all over the place. He's the worst farmer of all times. And even in his moments of physical agony on the cross, as scripture says, they are casting insults at him. Even then he's throwing seeds out. He's saying, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. He's sowing out seeds of forgiveness. There's a thief on the cross next to him. It says, will you remember me in your kingdom? Jesus throws a seed at him and goes, today you'll be with me in paradise. Even in those moments, you guys, we have a Savior who's throwing seeds. And we're like, it's just too hard. Dear Lord, that's the light that should be shining. Throwing seeds I don't think my arms ever got tired from throwing seeds. There's nothing to them. There's light. It's airy. I, I can do this. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I just think I, I have found this to be true. One of the most encouraging things in my life as a pastor, just as a person, is when I see somebody else's life turn, right? You see, you see that seed start to blossom and you're like, oh, praise God. And I think the idea that the seeds we throw that have a seed of renewal, a power of renewal within them on their own should be an incredibly encouraging thing to us as believers. For those who feel overwhelmed by the systems of life, for those who feel like, what can we actually do anymore in this world? It seems like it's fallen apart. I think Jesus says, keep throwing the seeds. <laughs> the power of renewals in there. Do what you can do. And trust me with the results.